Come on in. Grab a seat. I'm a, yeah. I'm gonna call you. I'm gonna call on you, in particular. <laughs> Okay. Good morning. I, you know, we are going to have uh, a, a kind of a max, mass exodus. I hear uh, uh, about 10:20, all the choir members are going to leave. So we'll just plan on that. These guys are rowdy. <laughs> okay. Sue, would you lead us in prayer? Okay, thank you. That, that worked. <laughs> All right, we're going to open in prayer this morning. Uh, Lord God, we, we come to you this day, Lord. We seek uh, to learn from you, Lord. We thank you uh, for your scriptures and, and the men that wrote them, Father. And uh, we ask you to guide us and, and help us and enrich us, Lord, with the depth of your word. Uh, we're grateful to you, Father, for what you've done to us and how you've made us fit for heaven. And uh, we just uh, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in his name we pray. Amen. Now, we kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger last week, I think. And uh, <clears throat> we were in the last passage of uh, chapter 3 of First Thessalonians. And uh, so I'm going to reread those last two verses just, and just kind of reset the stage if I can. First um, <clears throat> Thessalonians 3, I'll start in verse 12. It says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And I had said, when we look at all the scriptures that pertain to the return of Christ or the coming of Christ, the second coming, you know, a careful analysis shows us that all of these can't all be taken as pointing to one single event. When we take them in total, we see more of a sequence of things that happen and it occurs over a period of time. And uh, I even went over the, the, our statement of faith from, at Bernie Bible. And, it, and so I'd kind of like to just recap what we take from a literal reading of the scriptures regarding the return of Christ. So number one, we're looking for an imminent return of Christ. And that would be to remove his church both the living and the dead, and we would call that the rapture. And uh, at the time he comes, when he takes us, we're going to go with him in the air. After that, he's, he will take a Jesus. This is Jesus himself. will take us home to the Father's house, which we understand is heaven. Now, before we get into heaven, something has to happen so that we are fit for heaven. Uh, let's turn to Philippians 1.6 and 3.2. So I'm going to be in... Uh, Philippians for just a second. That speaks of us being made fit for heaven. This is Paul writing 
to the Philippian believers, and he says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he, that's Jesus, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then if I come over to Philippians just a bit, chapter 3 and verse 20, I'll, I'll read. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So when he comes and gets us, before we go into heaven, before anything's in heaven, it needs to be fit for heaven. And that probably pertains to this uh, blameless, blameless in holiness aspect of our hearts. But that last, the last two verses in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 referred to. So when we're in heaven, we're going to be in the presence of the Father and also holy angels. And uh, we should be there for a time. And while we are there, things are going to likely be happening on earth. And then at some point we come back to earth with Christ. That's Revelation chapter 19. We're going to come back with Christ to earth. We'll be with him and his angels are becoming as well. And his purpose at that point is to establish his holy kingdom, his righteous government on the earth. And Revelation 20 tells us that that's a thousand-year kingdom on earth that we're looking to. After that, there'll be a, a, a final judgment. That's a, this is a judgment most people think of when they think of judgment, a great, right, a great white throne. And that will be at, uh, the inauguration. At, that, at the end of that, there'll be inauguration into an eternal state where we'll have a new heavens and a new earth and a place called the New Jerusalem. So... The, verse that, the two verses I just read in 1 Thessalonians, where does that fit? Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 13 of uh, chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, where does that fit into all of this? Well, <laughs> a lot of students, when they read the fact that Jesus is coming with his saints, would attach that to the, the quote, the second coming or the main coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And they probably, I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, people that believe that. And, uh, but the problem is actually in the wording of that verse, all right? And the, the deeper question or the more, the more uh, determining factor in that verse is this, the part where it says that we will be presented, our hearts will be unblameable in holiness before God the Father. Now, when does that occur? Now, the confusion that we have in the English is uh, revolves around that word uh, coming, okay? And uh, let me just say this, that in the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, there are at least three different words that are used to uh, express the truth of the return of Christ or the coming of Christ. And those three words are epiphania or epiphania, apocalypsis, and parousia. Now, the, the real confusing part is that all three of those words are in passages that refer to what we, we would call the imminent return of the rapture uh, of the church, and they all three are used in passages that refer to the so-called second coming of Christ. So, 
we need to look at those three words. Epiphania actually means a shining through or a breaking through or as in a manifestation uh, or an appearing. This, this is the word we get epiphany from, an epiphany. Apocalypsis, you'll probably may recognize that one, is uh, it's an unveiling or a revelation, especially with regard to the, gl the glory of Christ. And this is actually the title of the last book of the, of the New Testament, the Revelation, literally meaning the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ in all, in all of his glory. Now, <clears throat> the first time that Jesus came, when he was born in Bethlehem, uh, he humbled himself. Porter, you alluded to this not long ago as well when we were talking. He, his glory was not visible to all. It was veiled in human flesh. Okay? So that really was not a apocalypsis. Huh. Somebody turned me on. Uh, it was more of an epiphany. But, you know, there was in the, uh, the uh, synoptic Gospels, there's, a, there's a, an event that it takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration in which his, his glory was not veiled. And, and I think John and James and Peter saw the Lord Jesus in all his glory, and he was with you know, Moses and Elijah at that time. So that was a little brief uh, unveiling that would have occurred. Uh, and also in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, there's, a, there's a, an area that may have been a brief momentary flash of the, the, uh, the glory of Jesus. And it was in uh, chapter 18 of John when they come to take him uh, before the high priest. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? I'm seeing some heads nod. At John 18, 6. I'm not saying that it is. Let me turn there, but it could be. John 18, 6. Let's see. I'll start in uh, five. Uh, they answered him, <coughs> Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with him. So when he said to them, I am he, this was a whole group of the Roman soldiers and all that came to take Jesus. They drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked them again, whom do you seek? Many see that as some momentary flash or some exposure to the majesty of Jesus that dropped them in their tracks. Something, something happened. I don't know. It's possible. Jonathan. Right. And what does that mean? <laughs> that's his name. That's his name. The Jewish would have understood. That's, I mean, they wouldn't even say that name for Lord. And uh, so it's pretty, uh, pretty incredible. But, yeah, I, I would uh, agree with that, too. And so, uh, you know, so he was really, he was veiled in that first coming. You know, even after his resurrection, when he was still on earth, he was still veiled. His glory was not evident to all those around, not in the way we see as we go, like when he appears before Paul or, or when he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos. And as best as I can ascertain, Ever since he ascended into heaven, he is veiled. Oh, excuse me, he is unveiled in all of his glory. And so we don't see him any other way 
after that. Now, that brings me to the third word in the Greek for coming. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13, the word that's used for coming is parousia, parousia. And it's actually a combination word, and it comes from para, which means alongside or alongside of, and ousia, meaning to be. So the actual meaning of that word is to be alongside of, or to be present, or as in the presence of. So it's a little confusing, but then I thought of an, an example. When, uh, so we had a guest speaker here about a month ago, right, Jim and, and uh, Bill Ream, and he did uh, a, a men's uh, conference for us. And I recall when Jim announced him to the group, he said something like, we're so happy for the coming of Jim, or excuse me, of Bill, to lead this conference. Well, Bill was already sitting on the stage. We were already in the presence of him, and the coming of it really was in his presence that we're referring to. So all that is to say, if we take a more literal reading of, of uh, verse 13, chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, it would read something like this. So that he, Jesus Christ, may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God the Father in the presence of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now that makes it a little more clear. So that the coming that we're talking about right, right here and that, that's translated coming is really more likely our coming into heaven to be before the Father where we would be at that point unblameable in holiness. So... I don't think it's either the rapture or the second coming necessarily. I could be wrong, but it's certainly uh, possible that it's speaking of our, our entrance into heaven. Okay? In 1 Thessalonians 2.19 is a similar, that same word is used in there, and we, and we saw that it was not consistent with the reference that was given to the coming in the first chapter of Thessalonians. So I'll just leave that. The real point, the real point here is that when we do come into heaven, and we are unblameable in holiness. It is nothing to do with us. It is nothing to do with anything on our part. You know, when, when we are allowed into heaven, it's going to be because we've entered by faith into God's marvelous grace. And we've come through the blood of Jesus Christ who washes away all of our sins. Okay. Any comment at that point? Then let's move into chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to read the first two verses here, and we'll talk. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So it begins with the word finally, which seems to indicate a change uh, of a subject or a change of approach on Paul's part because he's going to actually go into some very practical exhortations uh, in the rest of this, in this first part of the chapter for sure, especially as it regards to Christian living. Okay? So we need to pay attention. Now, <clears throat> three prominent words at the end of chapter 3 in Thessalonians uh, that I noted were love, holiness, and coming. 
in those last two verses. And it just so happens that these are also principal subjects that we're going to see as we come into chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, we're go they're going to be dealing with holiness. Holiness. In chapter 9 and 10, we're going to look at love, brotherly love, specifically. And then verses 13 through 18 are really a detailed description of Jesus Christ coming for the church, to remove His church, both the living and the dead. Now, in these first two verses that I just read, we're looking at uh, Paul, and he's pleading with the Thessalonians. Two things. Number one, that they walk in holiness before God, and they please God. And I thought it was interesting that at the end of this chapter, 4, he's going to close with the, the uh, uh, description of the snatching away of the saints, the church. So I should probably give you a rabbit trail warning about now <laughs> because I just can't let this kind of stuff go. All right, so if, if Paul were thinking of an Old Testament saint when he wrote chapter 4 and we see these uh, descriptives of walking in holiness with God, pleasing God, and being snatched away, who might he be thinking of? Enoch. Elijah? And that's, that's, that's good too, but I didn't choose him. <laughs> I focused on Enoch. Uh, and uh, what's that? Am I in trouble? Okay, uh, so Enoch. He's, he's a character that we don't read a whole lot about Enoch, you know. And uh, the... Uh, there are three main passages about Enoch, and I think we should read them before I start talking. So let's go Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24, and then we're going to go Hebrews 11 and Jude. Genesis 5, I'm going to just start at 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years, and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, at Hebrews, let's go to 11.5. That's that faith chapter. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Okay, and one more place, Jude, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Ooh. So, the point about that particular verse is that it confirms... If you go back in Hebrews, you'll see that 
Enoch, including Adam, is the seventh generation from Adam. And that might lead us to think that they were very far removed, Enoch and Adam. Think of your own family. I mean, how many in here know anything about their great, 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 great grandfather? You know, it sounds very far removed. But not when you do the math in Genesis 5, okay? That leaves another possibility open. Actually, Adam was a spry 640 years old when Enoch was born. <laughs> and he lived to be 930 years. So the first 290 years of Enoch's life, Adam was alive. Adam was alive. That blew my mind. Uh, and this would makes for some very interesting possibilities regarding Enoch. Um, he, the possibility that he grew up knowing the first man that God created. Okay? And there's something very pleasing about Enoch's walk to God. Uh, could Enoch have received firsthand information of what it was like to walk with God in the garden before the fall? It's not written in Scripture, but it's, it's a possibility. And here's the, so here's the question it raised in my mind. Could Enoch, could Enoch have hungered and sought after what Adam once had had and lost? And uh, I don't know, but he had a, there's a possibility that it could have occurred. What, do, what, what we do know is this. One, that Enoch so pleased God, he so pleased him in his walks that he was given prophecy in Jude 14 about the second coming of Christ. And, two, that he was taken up by God without ever having experienced death. And whatever the case, you know, I'd certainly like to know more about Enoch's walk. I mean, to me, he is the example that would be set forth as the one to follow. So, all right, enough, enough rabbit. Yes. Very good. And then the Hebrew passage, it actually talks, the verse after, uh, it talks about believing God and uh, knowing that he exists in the spirit. In the same passage, right, in Hebrews, yeah. Right, in the in Hebrews passage. I, I find that very interesting because I think sometimes you ask, what does it mean to walk with God? Right. Right? Exactly. What does that, what does that really mean? I don't think it's physically walking necessarily, but walking is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Right. And what you think and how you perceive God and how you perceive others. And I think that walking with God is synonymous with of being in agreement with him about what the truth is. Yeah, I agree. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we're exactly going to be looking at the rest of this chapter. Very well said. Um, yeah. So then Paul, I'm going to draw us back to the text of the first two verses. Paul charges them, these believers, and he does it by the authority of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I, I would say that Paul knows a little something about walking with God, too, in sanctification. You know, it's interesting that he, uh, if, if you believe in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 5, that he's the one that was ascended to the third heaven, uh, and he speaks of a man as if it's a, you know, 
someone else, but it, then he draws attention to himself in the matter, I believe is probably Paul. So he had, he had had a, a kind of a, an experience like Enoch in that as well. And anyway, he ends then the chapter with uh, the admonition to excel still more with, with the, with the uh, idea of sanctification. It's always to excel still more. Now I'm going to focus a little bit on that more because he's going to repeat that uh, in verse 10. So we'll look at that there a little more. At this point, let's go ahead and get back into the text and go uh, verses 3 to 5, back in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. Let's see. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This kind of truth is wholly absent in our culture today. And it was for the Thessalonians as well. There was, in particular on the Thessalonians, there was this constant pull, I've already talked about, to revert back into where they had come in the pagan religions. And, and when I say the pagan religions, I'm talking about the the religion mixed with immorality, sexual immorality primarily. And in our, in our culture, you know, if you, if you call for fidelity and sexual purity, we live in a day where you can be labeled, of course, judgmental, but even more than that, bigoted, okay? Especially, say again? Or even hate speech. If sexual deviancy can be uh, classified as an oppressed or a victim group, then you can be a bigot. All right. When when culture defines the terms, you know, and it's it's a strange time that we live in when good is evil and evil is good. So it's difficult to say these kind of words. Uh, it will become more so. But regarding sanct- sanctification, this is really what we're looking at through the rest of this, and it's what you were talking about, Kevin. That's correct. Absolutely. Now, we need to remember also here that these commands, they're not Paul's opinion, okay? They're not man's opinion. Uh, They come, again, with the authority of the Lord Jesus, and they are God's will. We're told it's God's will. And when when this was written, you have to understand, and I would say the same thing for our our day and age this was this was not an environment that you would call conservative or traditional that they were in the greek culture at that time was entirely decadent divorce was rampant uh, mistresses were commonplace uh, every kind of sexual perversion that you can think of was practiced and the pagan temple was where it primarily occurred and so uh, these temptations were facing these believers constantly daily in and out I know. I know we can't relate, but we need to really try, okay? But they knew, the Thessalonians knew, just as we do, that fallen culture, it can't be an excuse to fall into those sins, those same sins. This is, this is what we're looking at, sanctification. This is that separation that Kevin's talking about. 
It's a separation, okay? And that's at least, the separation that they're talking about here is at least part of what sanctification is. Let me ask this, uh, just as a general rhetorical question. Does sanctification mean moral perfection? Does sanctification mean moral perfection? I agree. We can't be perfect in this life. Okay. Really, it's yes and no. I'm going to start off with <clears throat> some, what some sources say regarding sanctification. There's more than one kind of sanctification. All right. First off, let me just talk about positional sanctification. And this, this sanctification is perfect. And it is complete, okay? And it's one of the numerous benefits that a believer gets the moment he believes. The moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice, a sacrificial substitute and to take away our sins, okay? To be our personal Savior. The moment we're born again, God has set us apart in a special way, in perfection. He's justified us, okay? And he's adopted us as sons and daughters, Okay. All of this is ours the moment we believe, okay? And that's regardless of what our life and our walk look like down here, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's giving exhortation about something that would be better considered to be a progressional sanctification, a progressive sanctification or a, a practical sanctification, okay? And this is that daily walk, in which we separate ourselves from the sin around us. It is a process, okay? And we call it a, we do call it a walk, but it's not a walk. It's a life. And it, and it continues until our death or the Lord comes to get us. We don't ever reach moral perfection in this mortal life, okay? But we do need to be set apart, as Kevin said. We're set apart for God's use, all right? And I'm going to give a good example here uh, in order to, to illustrate this. I'm going to uh, look at and read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Now, you're going to miss a little bit. I've chosen the New King James Version because it has the wording that I wanted to have to, to illustrate the point. So let me read it. I wrote it out of the New King James. It says, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So I would say, who, who are some of these men that spoke? Uh, and, and three of them came to mind for me, Moses, David, and Solomon. So I would ask you, were these guys holy? Yes. They were holy <laughs> in the sense that they were set apart to God's use. Were they morally perfect? No. Two of them were murderers. Two of them were sexually immoral. But they were set apart for use by God. And the scripture that they wrote was perfect because they were set apart. Now, all of this it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for, for moral perfection. We have a goal a goal in life, and it's to please God, to obey and to serve Him. And we strive for what we cannot achieve, but we don't stop. And we're going to see Paul exhort us to continue on. 
Let's go to back to uh, back to the text, verse six six through eight. I know the choir member is going to have to leave in a minute, and that's fine. Y'all take off when you need to. Uh, verses six through eight. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Not to defraud his brother in the matter, is the phrase used here in, in 6. Uh, and it relate, the matter relates back to what we just read, the sexual immoralities. And probably uh, likely referring to adulterous acts, not to defraud a brother. Something like running off with someone's spouse or even someone's future spouse. And it occurred to me that defrauding uh, can also be viewed as a form of robbery or robbing. And when you think of the, uh, in the financial world, when we hear these Ponzi schemes or pyramid plans, when, when people are cheated out of their money, they're robbed of their money. And I think sex, uh, sexual immorality can actually rob someone else of the gifts that maybe their future husband or wife may have had. And God takes that very seriously. You know, we live in a culture where when you, know, you can just sleep together and then get up and merrily go on your way and think that you've not done no harm. But, but there's a solemn warning here in these verses that Paul puts out. He says that the Lord himself is the avenger. God will judge. Uh, he doesn't overlook sin. He can't. Uh, he punishes those who break his law. And I always think of, well, that's them, you know, the unbelievers, not me. Uh, then I turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. And basically it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God, the hands of the living God. And I believe, I, I would say that that applies to believer and unbeliever alike. God can discipline us just fine. And so we, we need to keep that in mind. Um, and then in verse 7, it says, God has not called us to impurity, meaning God has called us to purity. If we go to Romans, I love Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's turn there. It's very well stated. This is what God calls us into. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I didn't pay much attention to that verse. I, I remember when my son, my son had just started medical school, and he was up in his room, and he had this big white board that he was studying, all this stuff. Uh, you know, just tons of, of uh, information he had. And on the, on the perimeter of the board, he had Romans 12, 1 and 2 written up there. And I'd really, at that point, I really started looking at that and thinking about that verse. And it really touched me. So I think that's what we're called to. So, Jack, you know, yeah. Is, this is like one of the best summaries in all of Scripture of the whole thing. 
isn't it? I mean, it's just something to strive for. And uh, we, we don't achieve it, but we, we don't give up. And, you know, and we're, not to, we're not to rest, we're not to ease up, we're not to settle in in our lives, in our walk. Say it loud, Kev. Go back and. Yes. And if you go back to the end of chapter 11 of Romans, it's really talking about how we only know God because of his grace. And that's that Duncan talks about God and this woman. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. But who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever been his God? Time. Really know that <coughs> right. And mercy. Therefore, <coughs> live your life as a sacrifice. In other words, it's not you don't live your life a certain way in order to to earn uh, a place with God. You live your 